Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Flora Shaw, and this is Science Montessori and Parenting from White Paper Press, the publisher of the Montessori White Papers. So here at SMP, we discuss the intersections of, you guessed it, science, Montessori, and parenting. And if you're not yet a member of our SMP Facebook group, what's the holdup? It's a really good place to get vetted information and to get your questions answered. In fact, if you pose a question to the SMP Facebook group, it might even be answered here on this very podcast. So in today's episode, I speak with... Dr. Jennifer Martin. I'm a clinical sleep psychologist here in Los Angeles, and I'm on the medical school faculty at UCLA. And we discuss every parent's favorite topic, sleep. Now, there's a lot of misinformation about sleep on the internet, so our focus in this episode is to provide actual science. And in fact, if you go to our show notes on our website at www.whitepaperpress.us, you can get a list of some suggested readings. Anyway, put your beliefs aside about sleep and just listen to the science. I have to tell you, I'm really excited that you're here today. Thank you. Because I am so tired of the controversies involved in sleep, and I would really like to put some of those controversies to bed. bed. Yes. (laughs) Perfect. I've been waiting all week to say that. (laughs) So, okay, so the first thing I want to ask you, because I think, let's just start with this, like, why is sleep so important? So let me go back to the question that people used to ask me, which is, how can I get by with less? Wow. Uh, People used to often ask me, you know, is there some way that I can train myself to sleep less? And as we've learned more about what sleep does for us, I get asked that question less and less. So the question that I get asked now is, how can I get more? The reason people have started asking that question is that we know sleep benefits both our brain and our physical body. In terms of our brains, one of the things that we have a growing body of literature around is the role that sleep plays in learning and memory and also emotion regulation. And all of these things are true in adults, but they're actually more true in adolescents and kids. So not getting enough sleep impacts learning, memory, and emotional well-being in kids to an even greater extent than it does in adults. In terms of our physical body, uh, sleep is when we release almost all of the growth hormone that we produce in 24 hours. So again, thinking about for adults, that probably has a lot to do with repairing our muscles after a tough workout, those kinds of things. But for kids, it really is when they grow. So, you know, some of our grandmothers used to tell us, eat good food and get enough sleep, and that's how you'll be taller. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I mean, that's not entirely true. Of course, your genetics determine how tall you are. But kids definitely grow uh, when they're asleep. The other thing that I'll make a comment about is that not getting enough sleep increases your risk for all kinds of accidents and injuries. Yeah, um, there was just an article about that recently in the in the paper. Yeah, and it's a big concern for older adults who might get up and fall and hurt themselves. But I, I think we, we are learning more and more about things like car accidents, drowsy driving. And again, this is a problem in adults, but it's an even bigger problem in teens who are inexperienced drivers. And uh, I think an area where we could use more research is in kids getting physically injured from falls or sports injuries or things like that. Oh, yeah, that's a good point, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, is there, when we're sleeping, isn't there some sort of like a cleaning sort of mechanism? Oh, so this is an interesting new theory uh, that's just been explored by a group in Oregon in the last couple of years that our brain actually accumulates waste 
and that during sleep it's cleaned. So um, Jeff Eliff, who was one of the lead authors, I've heard him describe it as it's like the garbage truck coming and picking up all the trash. Yeah. Um, now that research hasn't actually been done in humans. It was all done in rodents. So um, it may or may not be the same in the human brain, but it does kind of make sense. One of their findings actually relates to the accumulation of something called beta amyloid, which is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Right, right. Um, so they really are thinking that insufficient sleep for any reason might lead to the accumulation of beta amyloid in the brain and predispose to Alzheimer's disease. So yeah. we'll wait. I mean, we don't know, again, if this will play out in human studies. Yeah. But in the animal research, it's, and it's kind of a new, interesting theory about one of the functions of sleep. We've always focused on sleep as restoring the brain, but this notion that it might also clean the brain is kind of an interesting new way of looking at it. Well, I think it's even just interesting that we're switching from how can I get less to how can I get yeah. more and how culture really determined for a long time uh -huh. what was important about sleep. But now science is informing us and That's can right. then inform our culture, which I think is really great. Yeah. You know, until around the mid nineties, people were actually having a hard time documenting that there was any cognitive effects of not getting enough sleep because they would do things like sleep deprive subjects in an experiment and then give them a lot of motivation to do a simple task. And the truth is that after one night of sleep loss, if you are really motivated to do something, you can overcome it. Yeah. But what they st then there was some studies where they started doing brain imaging and they found out that to do simple tasks after sleep deprivation, you have to use parts of your brain that you normally would reserve for complicated tasks. Which, okay, so that's great. We can overcome the effects of short-term sleep loss. The problem is if you layer a complicated task on top of that, you can't do it. Right. So um, I think some of the effects are subtle of not getting enough sleep and people don't always notice it. When I talk about kids, I'll say, you know, kids can memorize their spelling words, but they can't use them in a sentence when they're sleepy. Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's right. What about the effects of lack of sleep on postpartum depression? So there actually have been a few studies over the past few years about having poor sleep during pregnancy as a predictor of postpartum depression in women who've had a previous episode of postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a group at Stanford right now where they're actually doing a study to see if they can help pregnant women sleep better and help them uh, have the support that they need to get good sleep in that immediately postpartum period, whether that actually can reduce the risk of a second episode of postpartum depression. So yeah. We don't know the answer yet. I mean, the question is always, once you find a correlation, if you fix it, does the problem go away? Right. Or is there some third variable that predisposes these women both to poor sleep during pregnancy and to postpartum depression? So, Yeah, I um, guess, I mean, I've always kind of just looked at it as a contributing factor yep. for sure, because, I mean, having had children of my own, <clears throat> it was... Uh, Really difficult time. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree. <laughs> um, and you feel like you're kind of uh, walking through life, you know, kind of hazy. One of the challenges is that newborn babies don't have a fully developed circadian timing system. Right. So they don't biologically sleep at night and be awake during the day. Well, mom already has that fully developed timing system. So it, that can be one of the challenges, I think, in terms of getting enough sleep. So, you know, again, one of the interventions is to make sure that women have time for protected sleep when they have a newborn. And I, you know, in my experience, it was easier with the first child than the second one, because when you have the second one, you want to spend time with the first child when you're your new one is sleeping. Exactly. So, yeah, definitely a challenge. And, and my advice to parents usually is don't worry, they grow up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> exactly. I just I remember my vocabulary went down to I think maybe fifty words. Yeah, yeah. Definitely Every, everything no was higher thing. than like kindergarten level. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was really frustrating. Okay, one of the other things I want to talk about. So, sleep is a really controversial issue, mm-hmm. uh, especially for parents, and there seems to be a moral versus scientific view of sleep. Mm-hmm. I'm going to share a little story that kind of illustrates this. I was at a, uh, a Montessori conference a few years ago, and there was this very prominent neuroscientist who came to speak. And after she gave her talk on her particular area of expertise, somebody during the Q&A session asked, what do you think about sleep training children? And this neuroscientist responded with, I think it's one of the cruelest things that you can do to let a baby cry. And I, of course, was there listening to this, and I had to exercise incredible (laughs) self-restraint because I wanted to jump up uh, and say, what are you doing? And hijack the conversation. (laughs) And of course, when she gave that response, the room just erupted into cheers Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, clapping and... What she gave was not a scientific perspective. Right. It was a personal opinion. Right. Um, it was a moral judgment mm-hmm. is really what it was. And my fear was that people were going to walk out of that thinking that because a scientist said this, that this therefore is backed by science. Keeping in mind too that interestingly enough, just as a side note, this neuroscientist doesn't have any children mm. of her own either. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Speaking from an opinion where you're not even experiencing, you haven't done it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like t- teaching someone to drive a car when you don't know how to drive. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and yes. you've never read about driving a car either. Right. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, sleep training is is uh, so having done it twice as a parent, it's really difficult the first time. Well, and I don't and think then, anybody goes, "Wow, I'm so excited to exactly. sleep train my children." It is the most horrifying thing that That's you can right. do it's as a parent. Hard. Well. It can be, unless you really understand how what's happening. Right. So I actually would argue that the most cool thing you can do to your kids is underemphasize how important sleep is. And that might start with how you treat sleep when they're infants. One of the challenges is that young infants and children need a lot more sleep than their parents do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sleep training and co-sleeping whether parents plan it this way or not, they end up going together because if you don't sleep train your kid, you're going to end up needing to sleep with them. And, you know, an infant probably needs 14 hours of sleep a night, depending on their age. And parents usually need seven or eight. So either you're going to lie there awake with them for seven hours a day, or you're going to have to do something with their sleep habits and routines that doesn't perpetuate good sleep over the long run. So what I mean by that is, for example, if you have to lay down with your child for them to go to sleep, even if you don't fall asleep, they will, then they'll wake up and then you'll be in the middle of doing something else. And they'll sort of not develop the understanding that there's times of day when it's time for them to be sleeping because you're going to be busy doing other things. And then you'll have to go back and lay down with them or bring them into your bed or whatever. Now, I also tell parents, no kids are sleeping in their parents' bed the day before they go to college. Right. So don't sleep train (laughs) until you're ready. I don't think there's any problem. There's no evidence that not sleep training is damaging to kids. Right. But for most families, what works best is if the kids sleep on their own. The other thing that I think parents need to be aware of is that in the United States, co-sleeping is associated with higher incidence of SIDS. 
Mm-hmm. We actually don't know why it's that way in the U.S. and not in other parts of the world. I, my personal hypothesis is that American parents are really sleep deprived, and we have higher rates of obesity, so we probably have higher rates of sleep disorders that go with obesity. Mm. So parents are more likely to sleep through their infants um, struggling or to smother them accidentally. But that's my own theory. I don't. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people have to be aware of that, though, if they're making the decision to co-sleep. Yeah. Now, in terms of sleep training, I mean, there's more than one way to do it. The you know, there's the sort of cold turkey. You just leave your baby in their room and they cry. But there are some researchers and, and clinicians who advocate a different approach. And so for people that aren't ready to just completely let their kid cry it out, there are, you know, kind of periodic checking methods where you can basically gradually remove yourself from the situation. And some parents feel more comfortable with that, but it takes longer. Um, right. But I, it's my understanding that that's uh, the intervention that we have the most uh, empirical support right. for. Right. It's true. And, you know, it's like any behavior that you're trying to extinguish. I mean, what you're actually trying to get your kid to do is fall asleep without you there. So, you know, I not to use, I mean, smoking isn't the best comparator, but when people try to quit smoking, a lot of times what they'll do is they sort of cut one cigarette out at a time. So it's a little bit like that when you're trying to change a behavior pattern. Sometimes you just cold turkey and sometimes a more gradual approach works better. What works better is actually more about the parents than it is about the kids. Right. And that's actually why we have more empirical support for the graduated extinction than the cold turkey, because it's much harder for parents to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. The other mistake that I see parents make when they try to sleep train, though, is that they try to do it too early before the kid's circadian timing system is fully developed. Oh, right. So I think one of the other cautionary notes is not to do it until your kid is naturally sleeping mostly during the night so that their biology is sort of set up that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I will tell you that I, my first child, I didn't really have to sleep train in the beginning. She started sleeping through the night on her own when she was about four months old. And I thought, oh, this is so easy. And then when she was about nine months old, she started waking up at night and she would cry and we would go in her room thinking something must be wrong because she's been sleeping on her own. And after about a week of that, when my husband and I could barely see straight because we were so tired, we decided like, okay, this is not about her needing something at night because the minute we walked in the room, she'd stop crying and be happy to see us. Mm -hmm. And we were both working parents and that was just not going to work for us. So we decided we were going to let her cry. So the first night, we went into her room and said, okay, Alex, it's time to sleep now. Mommy and daddy love you. Good night. And we shut the door and my husband went into the garage and I went downstairs in my office and put on headphones. And it was the most excruciatingly painful, difficult, what I thought was four hours, but really was about half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of like her four crying days. upstairs in her room. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the next night she woke up and cried for a few minutes and went back to sleep and that was it. It was so simple. Now, it's not always that simple. And right. I think another thing is that parents shouldn't take that approach unless they're really committed. I, I hear a lot from parents who say, we tried it and it didn't work. That's not how it, it, behavioral extinction works. So, you know, like I said, I think one of the mistakes people make is they try to do it too early. Right. I will say that as far as I know, there's no evidence of any kind of permanent neurological damage from sleep training your kids. But there is pretty good evidence that not teaching your kids that sleep is important and making sure they get enough of it is bad for brain development. Yes, this so, is the thing. And so, yeah. the, so the arguments that I would generally hear, and I'm hearing them in my head as I'm listening to you talk, mm-hmm. is that, well, yes, you might be working parents or whatever it is, sure. but you have to make sacrifices as a parent for your child, right? And yep. the sacrifices is, is that 
you need to be there with them and sure. you need to and soothe them and you need mm -hmm. to, you know, they shouldn't be crying and it's really your sleep training more for your benefit than you are for their benefit type of thing. But this last point that That's you made. That's very interesting. Yeah. It, it, and it, it, right. But see, from my perspective, and again, this is my bias because I did have to sleep train both of my children. Mm -hmm. it, it was not something I wanted to do, mm -hmm. but they were not going to sleep unless I, right. I did it. So my bias is, is that actually the sacrifice is, is that you have to sacrifice your own discomfort. In the short term. In the short term. For something that's good for them over the long run. Over the long run. Well, let me ask you a question, Laura. Have you ever yelled at your kids over something stupid because you were so tired? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so as a parent, I know I'm a better parent when I'm well rested. Yeah. And and I, um, yeah, it's true. You You definitely have to make sacrifices for your kids. And if my kids have the flu in the middle of the night, right. I am not going to insist that they sleep on their own. Right. Uh, and, you know, if they wake up from a nightmare, of course I'm going to go in their room and exactly. comfort them. But that's different from helping them learn how to sleep well. I mean, we teach our kids to use spoons, even though they would be much better at eating if we fed them ourselves. And no, they're not perfect at it right at the beginning. It takes them a while to master the skill. And I think falling asleep is just like that. The other thing is, again, though, I think parents have so placed so little importance on their own sleep that they're just not modeling the right thing for their kids for the very beginning. Mm. So I also see a lot of very sleep-deprived parents of newborns who will do things like put their baby to bed at 7 o'clock and then watch TV until midnight. They're coming at it from the approach that sleep is not important and it's more important that my, my child is happy in the moment, which is exactly what they're doing. They're doing things that make them happy in the moment and sacrificing their own sleep so I, I think that this conversation has to shift a little bit toward why healthy sleep habits for families is so important yeah. and not why, why you know, you should or shouldn't sleep train or parents should or shouldn't go to bed early when they have infants or, I mean, and we'll talk a little later about school schedules and activities and mm -hmm. things like that. But I think the whole conversation around family sleep habits has to change. It is about everybody in the family, mm -hmm. right? And so... I'm also thinking about how before I actually sleep trained Cedric, for instance, when he just decided to stop sleeping mm -hmm. during the day, just yeah. without any warning, you know, yeah. I get no memo from him, like nothing. He just- Kids are really bad at memos. I know. I just, it's really annoying. Five and a half months, he's just stopped sleeping. And the poor guy was a basket case. Right. I mean, he, you know, he was so irritable. It was like- he wanted to get away from himself. If he could have left the room and left himself in the other room, right. he would have, but he couldn't. He was so out of sorts. And once we actually sleep trained him, which took four days, yeah. he, he was so happy. Yeah. And he was himself exactly. again, and he could feel good. You yeah, know? And I think another kind of misconception that a lot of parents have is that if their kids are overtired, they tend to be very cranky and inconsolable. But it's because they're overtired. That's right. And and I, again, I mean, thinking about family priorities, making sure that when your kids are supposed to have a nap, that you're protecting that time. Yes. And and this is hard. And in terms of making sacrifices for our kids, the sacrifice is I don't get to go out to lunch with my friends or I don't get to schedule a work meeting or whatever it might be because it's nap time. Yeah. Um, I actually had a patient, this was now like 15 years ago, who had a daughter who was one who had been a superstar napper and all of a sudden just stopped napping. And, you know, it was a little bit of a, a mystery as to why. 
And she was saying, you know, we just remodeled her room and it's beautiful and everything. And I don't know why she can't sleep in there. And they had put a skylight in her room. Oh, no. And what had happened is the, the little girl used to get put in her room for her nap and she'd fall asleep and it was dark and quiet. And when they put this skylight in, it now is suddenly really bright. And I said, well, it's very hard for her. She doesn't have the same cues to fall asleep anymore. And it's definitely easier for kids to fall asleep when it's, when it's darker. Uh, so can you cover the skylight? And the mom said, oh, no, we can't cover the skylight. That wouldn't aesthetically go with the room. (laughs) So when we talk about making sacrifices for our kids, (laughs) right? We look great. And actually, Laura, I remember you put foil on the the window in Cedric's room when the kids were babies. (laughs) I was just going to bring that up. For for years, we had... (laughs) And foil on the kids' windows. Yeah, so it would be dark when they're not So it was day. dark, yes. And so you sacrificed <laughs> the exterior aesthetics of your home. It grew us like, they're going to think we're running a crack I'm house, just the say- neighbors. <laughs> and I was like, I don't care. Our kids are going to sleep and we're all going to be happy. Exactly, right? But I mean, those are the kinds of things that, that I hear from from parents who, yeah. you know, they, they want... They, 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 um, and I, again, I think one of the issues, which is changing over time is that people don't really understand how sleep works. They don't understand what kind of that internal circadian cycle is. They don't understand the importance of dark during sleep. Light suppresses melatonin. That's why there's all the press about electronic devices before bedtime. Right, right. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I guess that's another area is, you know, all this technology exposure for very young kids is like sunlight in their eyes before bedtime. So, you know, that's another area where I think parents are not doing a good job of modeling how important good sleep is to their kids. Yeah, that's such a good point. So, and so I want, I do want to talk about older children, but before we go into older children, I just, I want to just stress that if your family and chooses to, to co-sleep and not sleep train, That is your choice. As long as everybody gets enough sleep. Honestly, that's my feeling. (laughs) I don't care where you all sleep, just as long as people are sleeping, because that that is absolutely Mm -hmm. the most important thing. Which means that parents need to stop what they're doing a reasonably early hour when their kids are small, maybe seven or eight o'clock at night, disengage and go put their kids to bed. Yeah. Period. Yeah, exactly. Um, Because my, you know, again, one of the things I see a lot is that parents who don't sleep train their kids when they're young and choose to co-sleep when they're school age, end up with very sleep-deprived kids. Yeah. but And what I would also just like to see is for parents to just not shame one another. Absolutely. Uh, re- yeah. Whatever it is that you're doing, because I I felt that there was definitely a lot of shaming of for those yeah. of us who did sleep train. Mm-hmm. And I'm really, I'm not interested in shaming parents who don't, but I would have parents, when I was ahead of school, I would have parents come to me all the time with sleep problems. And yeah. I had one mother in particular who would come every four or five weeks and say, you know, I, I can't get them to sleep. I can't get the kids to sleep. Mm-hmm. And, she, you know, she tried everything. And I said, you're just going to have to let them cry a little bit. Yeah. And she goes, I just won't do that. And I said, well, then, then this is your then alternative. This is your alternative. Right. You know, you just have to accept that. And yeah. But it was like she was looking for something else. And boy, man, if we all had something unfortunately, else, <laughs> that would have been great. Unfortunately, I also see kids in that situation getting put on medications for sleep. You know, I was shocked in when yeah. I was looking at the research literature that that is considered an intervention that pediatricians will actually recommend 
that, I, that is not, don't like doing that. I, uh, they, okay, they're basically, I, I often say that they're, they're actually treating parents desperation <laughs> in that instance. Yeah. And I mean, there are some kids, kids who have developmental disabilities who may really need a sleeping pill right. because they're so anxious about sleep because of developmental considerations that they really do need it. But that's a rare exception. You know, there are definitely some kids who have severe forms of ADHD or autism or, you know, again, developmental delay where they can't settle themselves. And that's a separate issue from a normal, healthy child who doesn't have any kind of neurological or developmental problems. Right. Right. That's Um, a good point. But again, I think most pediatricians are actually not eager to put kids on sleeping pills. We don't really have data on what the long-term ramifications are of kids taking sleeping pills. It's very difficult to do that research because, I mean, think about it. Would you enroll your healthy child in a clinical study of a a medication? Mm -hmm. Of course not. Very few parents would. But I do think that a lot of times, at least in my experience when I used to work in a pediatric sleep center, the sleeping pills were given because the parents couldn't make other choices. So again, we talk about making sacrifices for our kids. Some of them are that, you know, as you suggested, we have to do things that are difficult in the short run because that's what's best for them in the long run. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about older children. Mm -hmm. When I was a clinician and I would do intakes for Mm -hmm. some of my child clients at the schools, you know, you'd have to do these very long intakes and you have to look at the children's sleep schedule. And it was really interesting because I would get children referred to me by teachers who would say, I think this child has ADHD or whatever. And then you find out that this eight-year-old child is going to bed at 11 o'clock every Mm -hmm. single night. And I would tell the parents, you need to put the child to bed at eight. Right. And they would look at me like I had two heads. Like, what are you talking about? He's not tired. Yeah. Well, and again, it's, Uh they get a second wind. Yes. So if you don't From sleep deprivation. From sleep (laughs) deprivation. The time to put them to bed is to Mm -hmm. look at when there's become kind of calm and they're rather quiet, that's generally an indication of the window. If they start getting hyper after that, that means you've sort of missed the window of when to put them to bed. Yeah. And you know, I a couple of really concrete recommendations that I think can be helpful for parents is, number one, we should stop making bedtime a punishment or oh, a negative gosh. thing. Right. I mean, one of our like routines with our kids when they were small is we actually, you know, we kind of had a routine and every night before bed, they got to pick two books and hear two made up stories. And actually my son, who's now almost 11, we were laughing about some of the stories we used to tell about a squirrel in our backyard (laughs) when he was little, but that sort of made the whole thing fun. And we did that in the kids' rooms and then they went to bed. And no, not every night was perfect. Some nights they would protest and complain and everything because it was fun, of course, and they they liked doing fun things with their parents. But I think for a lot of parents, they're busy doing other things and it's like, okay, you got to go to bed now. And the kid is, as you were just mentioning, overtired already and it creates a lot of resistance and the parents are stressed out and the kids are stressed out and all this stress make does make it hard for kids to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. So if you have a kid, for example, that's going to bed at 11... One way that I approach it with parents is to say, it would be good to work toward eight o'clock. Yeah. So maybe you start by just moving it a little bit earlier because the parents also have to change their evening routine. It's, well, it's all so, about the habits of everybody. Right. Yeah. 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 So my, my approach with a lot of families like that would be like, let's try 1030 for a while. And if you can get the kid to fall asleep at 1030, then let's try nine and let's like sort of gradually. And again, you're 
if your kid isn't typically falling asleep until 11 o'clock on school nights, and then probably you're letting them sleep in on the weekends, they kind of have jet lag. So you have to shift their clock a little bit slowly. And again, if you have parents who don't model good sleep habits, uh, you run into all sorts of issues. I used to see a lot of like kids drinking soda and iced tea at dinner. That was another one. So, you know, really watching out for caffeine and sugar and things like that late in the day, which can make them a little more activated. Making the bedtime routine something that's to look forward to, not a punishment. And then when you're trying to get your kids to bed earlier, being mindful of their internal clock and trying to make the shift gradually, which I think is actually easier for parents because you do, like I said, you have to change your evening routine. Yeah. The, you, you mentioned something about kids, you know, teachers thinking that kids might have ADHD or something like that. And it is true that sleep loss makes kids behave differently. There was a really kind of cute little experiment that someone did where they took a bunch of toddlers who were habitual nappers and they didn't let them take a nap. And then they had them play with a toy that was kind of frustrating Mm -hmm. and they completely lost it. (laughs) (laughs) And if they took their nap, they'd sort of play with the toy and then ignore it after a while. Like this toy is stupid and they go do something else. But think about that in the context of school with a six or a seven-year-old. So if they're struggling with a concept and they're sleepy, they're more likely to act out, give up. And then if they're sleep deprived the next night, they won't retain the information that they just learned. Yeah. You um, just describe me if when I don't get enough sleep, <laughs> I act too. out. It's like, it's like, you can't, can't tell, you, I can't you, tell you how many times I've had to take a trip to the East Coast. And because of the jet lag, I'm kind of sleep deprived when I get back and I can't find my car at the airport. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be me. Because yeah. I didn't remember, right? Three nights of not getting enough sleep and I can't find my car. But, you know, I think that this is, again, part of how parents actually can help their kids by modeling good sleep habits themselves. And, you know, one of my other questions is, well, should the parents even be up till 11 o'clock at night? Right. Or do they have to get up in the morning? Yeah. I mean, even adults need at least seven hours of sleep on a regular basis just to maintain their health. So if parents aren't getting at least seven hours of sleep every night, it makes you wonder what's going on with the the kids in the whole family sleep environment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really important that, um, especially once your kids are old enough to sort of understand, to really mm-hmm. start talking to them about the importance of sleep. That's a great point. And to talk about how it affects their brains. And, mm-hmm. you know, because our kids, they still go to bed at eight o'clock every night and they've been asking for later bedtimes mm-hmm. during the week. Mm-hmm. And we said, no, yeah. this is, you need yeah. to, this is important for your brain. You're, you need a certain number of hours of sleep in yeah. order to function in school and to be able to learn and right. to feel good. Exactly. And and then when there are times when they go to bed late mm-hmm. because maybe there's some special event going on or right. whatever it is, the next day, point out to them, like, you seem a little like you're dragging That's a little right. bit. You seem mm-hmm. like you don't feel so good, you know, to see what happens when you don't get enough sleep type That's of right. thing. And we all have the opportunity to uh, have that discussion. And, and you know, I, I think my kids have a kind of a biological tendency to be night owls. My grandmother, who's now 90, is a little bit of a night owl, and this is something that's very genetic. I don't have it, but I have a feeling that my kids kind of have that genetic predisposition. But, you know, my my 10-year-old son, like, he loves staying up late, and it's so hard to get him up for school in the morning, and he'll complain and delay, and I'll say, well, this is what it feels like if you don't go to bed on time. Getting up and going to school is unpleasant, so... If you don't want to feel this way, we're going to have to go to bed earlier. Now, my kids don't go to bed at 8. They go to bed a little later than that. Mm -hmm. But they don't have to get up particularly early in the morning. 
it's interesting. My daughter was telling me that her club volleyball coach told them that practice during the week might go as late as 10 o'clock. And I looked at her and I said, I'm going to have to talk to her about that. And she said, I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) But again, I think one of the issues is adults don't model how important sleep is. And especially for student athletes, there's so much data on, even if you look at NFL teams, teams with jet lag lose more often. Oh, wow. I mean, it's so so obvious, right? When you think about it, the uh, teams from the West Coast have an advantage when they play Monday night football games because they're playing at a reasonable hour West Coast time. The East Coast teams are playing very late at night. Wow. So, I mean, I think that, you know, we should kind of respect that this is not like an individual weakness. It's really a bio, it's a biological phenomenon. No, exactly. It's Mm -hmm. not a weakness at all. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the other issues that's kind of a hot topic right now that's super controversial is the issue of when high school should start. Oh, yeah. So teenagers are biologically predisposed to being night owls. And I think a lot of us had the experience when we were teenagers of dragging ourselves out of bed in the morning to go to school. And, you know, there definitely are some social factors that come into play. It's very easy for teenagers to stay up late biologically. So in order to get up early for school and maintain an early schedule, they're fighting against their internal biology. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not impossible to do that. But unfortunately, what happens is they get so sleep deprived during the week. I think some of the latest numbers I saw are that like a majority of high school students sleep less than seven hours a night during the week. And their biological sleep need is probably more like eight and a half to nine hours, especially boys because they're still growing. So they're chronically sleep deprived. And then on the weekends, they don't get up early because they're so sleep deprived. So then they kind of have Monday morning jet lag. Yeah. And they can't fall asleep early on Sunday night because they just got up at noon on Sunday. Yeah. So they're just not hungry enough for sleep on I, Sunday night. I remember being a teenager and not being able to go to bed mm-hmm. before midnight. And then high school started at 7.35 in the morning or something like that. And it was just painful That's to like get up. asking us to go to work at 4.30. Yeah. It was painful. And then I would come home at around 3 or something and I was so exhausted and I would want to take a nap. And my mother, had, she, was, she wouldn't let me take a nap mm-hmm. because... There was too much to do. There was too much to do. Like that, you're just wasting time, yeah. right? Yeah. And then on the weekends, I would get up at around noon, sometimes mm-hmm. one o'clock in the afternoon. Yep. I remember my dad would come in and jokingly check my pulse, <laughs> <laughs> make sure I was still alive. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I think we didn't know then what we know now. About sleep, of course. I mean, you and I are about the same age. So this is like, you know, the 70s and 80s. Right. But, you know, now we know better. And one of the things that I think is so interesting is this debate about whether this is just teenagers, talk about a moral judgment. Teenagers just, they don't take care of themselves. It's socially driven. Like they just stay up all night on their smartphones. So there's (sighs) now been a number of school districts who have shifted school start times later. And when they do, kids sleep more unequivocally. And I think that's really important because when I talk to people like teachers and administrators and even some parents, they'll say, well, kids are just staying up late because they feel like it. And even if we start school later, they'll, they'll just stay up later. And it turns out that's not true. The other benefits that districts have seen is less absenteeism, better test scores, and less mental health problems mm-hmm. in kids when they shift from an early to a later school start time. So the current recommendations 
uh, from the American Academy of Pediatrics are that high school shouldn't start before 8.30. And I know, you know, my nephew lives in Virginia. His high school starts at 9 o'clock. And my sister says it's the best thing ever. Yeah. He's, he's a much happier kid than yeah. he was in eighth grade. Yeah. Because he gets an extra hour of sleep every morning. Well, right. And so, we, you know, we, we have the stereotype about adolescents being... Moody. Defiant and moody. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they're just not getting enough sleep. Uh, that's right? definitely not helping. <laughs> right? Think about the toddler with a frustrating toy. Well, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now make it, you know, calculus. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That just makes me irritable well, and thinking about that. Yeah. I mean, and I think all of these like parents who spend outrageous amounts of money on enrichment programs and tutors and an extra hour of sleep for your kid is actually free. Yeah. And so much better. <laughs> yeah. Yes. In because the long run. for their for their learning, for the for everything. And and again, I mean, there's driving sleep deprived, because you know, a lot of adolescents are inexperienced drivers. Driving when you're sleep deprived is as bad as driving when you're drunk. You know, I mean, unfortunately, if you start thinking about it and asking around, most people know someone under the age of twenty-five who died in a fall asleep car accident. Ugh. I mean, it's really tragic. And they tend to be fatal accidents because Unlike a driver who's drunk, someone who falls asleep doesn't even try to avoid a collision. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. One one other thing that I just want to hit on, because I realized that we didn't specifically mention this word when we were talking about the whole sleep training thing, mm-hmm. but I, I just want to talk about cortisol for a moment. Mm-hmm. When parents talk yeah. about the potential brain damage of any letting your child cry, right? It's because it's from the cortisol. And so as you know, in the mainstream media, cortisol is a really, really bad, bad thing. Yeah. And, you know, there's been, there's been research that shows that when children go to daycare centers, that there's a rise in cortisol and when, uh, you know, all of these things, if, you know, rise in cortisol, rise in cortisol. Cortisol is why we run away from lions, by the way. Yeah, I know. It's also it's why we get out of bed in the morning. Sure. It helps us to do that too. Exactly. So what's what is your what's what's my thinking? Yes, about what's, this? yes. So I mean cortisol is a stress hormone and it's um you know, our stress response is incredibly important, right? It keeps us safe. It's probably why we've survived. Yeah. You know, for thousands of years. Because our body is able to mount that fight or flight response, and cortisol is an important part of that. I did a little bit of research on cortisol in people who are in the hospital and recovering from big health events like a surgery or a major illness or something like that. And what we found was actually that higher cortisol was associated with better outcomes. And when you think about it, It makes sense because these people had just had something terrible happen to them physically. So it was probably the people who could mount an effective stress response who recovered better. Yeah. So this was not what we expected, by the way. We had to like scratch our heads and look to the literature and figure it out after the fact. So that was not my hypothesis. My hypothesis was that high cortisol would be bad, that people with higher and, and the other interesting thing that we found is that cortisol levels were highest right after people got physical therapy. Now, doing physical therapy when you're in the hospital is really good for you, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I think in some ways, we have to keep in mind that cortisol is there for a reason. What's bad for you is chronically elevated levels of cortisol. So things like kids who are in chronic uh, situations that are unsafe or stressful, you know, not to make it too, too light of it, but you know, your mom is constantly sleep deprived and yelling at you all the time, <laughs> for example, 
Chronically elevated cortisol probably is bad for you. Sleep training probably elevates cortisol, but not for 10 years. It probably elevates cortisol for an hour. Right. And that may be a perfectly adaptive stress response. Right. And also, I read something. There's a, one researcher who talks about it sort of acts as an amnestic in a way so mm-hmm. that a new behavior can be learned. Yeah. Right? So you right. The, Stress is motivating. It's motivating. So you yeah. then you learn, and, and the goal is to learn how to self-soothe mm-hmm. and how to be able to put yourself to sleep That's and right. manage your own sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the issues with sleep training is that it is a short-term stressor, but chronic sleep deprivation is a long-term stressor. And it's actually associated with cortisol elevations on a chronic basis if people are sleep deprived. So that's the irony, right? Yeah, that is, right. that's like, that's not what people are expecting. They think right. that, it, that by seeing the child cry, right. that that's more harmful right. than actually the long-term effects of right. the lack of sleep, which exactly. is actually going to provide right. the rise in cortisol. That's right. Now, there, yeah. there's another interesting twist to all of this. When we're sleep deprived, we're not very good at estimating risk. So sleep deprived parents should not do this. <laughs> <laughs> And again, I mean, I think a big part of this conversation is how parents feel about their own sleep and how that in some ways gets projected onto their kids. Mm. So if parents are constantly tired and exhausted and they see sleep as something that gets in the way of them doing other things that they care about, how could they possibly appreciate the value of helping their kids learn a lifelong skill, which is settling themselves, going to sleep easily, sleeping through the night? I mean, these are all things that 30% of adults struggle with it. No yeah. wonder we have a hard time teaching it to our kids. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other issue is you should sleep train your kids at a time when they're likely to fall asleep. So establishing a regular sleep schedule first, mm-hmm. even if you're putting them to bed regularly mm-hmm. and then you sleep train them, that's better too. I think when kids have a very chaotic sleep schedule and then you try to sleep train them, they're not sure biologically sure. I don't mean psychologically sure. They're not sure when sleep is supposed to happen. Right. So you may end up trying to put them to bed too early for their, you know, internal sleep tendency. And then it is harder. Whereas if they kind of have a regular routine and they're typically going to bed and getting up at a certain time, then that's the time that you sleep train them. Yeah. And I think that's really important too, is for them to be able to start to notice, become aware mm-hmm. of yeah. when they're really tired and then therefore they That's need right. to, mm-hmm. you know, it's amazing how kind of disconnected we can become from our bodies. So yeah. we're, we're not actually aware of what our bodies are telling us. You know, we just had New Year's Eve. So uh, Cedric was the first one to put himself to bed. He just goes, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to bed. I can't yeah. stay. I'm just too tired. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay. That, I was yeah. actually kind of mm-hmm. shocked, but he, you know, he was yeah. listening to his body That's right. and he was aware and he took care of it and he yeah. slept in the next day. Exactly. You know? and, and I have one kid who is very attuned to that and one kid who isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you reflect on your own parenting, but I think one of the biggest mistakes we made is that we parented our second child, like our first one. And it took us about two years to figure out that that was just not going to work. Right. <laughs> They're a different and person. We, we kept thinking like, <laughs> what's wrong with this kid? I mean, we're doing everything that worked last time. (laughs) And then it was like that aha moment of, oh, this is a different little human being. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, there are some kids who really recognize sleepiness or hunger. And then there's other kids that just know they're unhappy. And as parents, I think one of the things we can do is help them figure out why. And like I said, I think this is where parents sort of saying, well, maybe you're sleepy. 
Maybe yes. you're just tired. Yes. Um, See, that's my that's our second mm-hmm. one, right? Yeah, so Reese stayed exactly. up. She was <laughs> she <Yeah. laughs> she stayed up. But we we yeah. especially with her, we have to do that. Yeah, we have to say, "See, you didn't get enough sleep," and that's why you're feeling this mm-hmm. way. Yeah, and it's okay. I mean, and I think this is another area where sleep is not a punishment. You no. know, and I, like I said, I'll tell my son, "You feel this way because you stayed up late last night." Yeah, and wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nicer if you could wake up on your own and feel rested in the morning, as opposed to feeling so crummy? Yeah. Any last minute things that you want to share with us? Um, I think the only other thing that I would want to share is that I think parents have to be mindful of their own sleep first and really, you know, again, sort of set aside that seven to eight hours for themselves for uninterrupted sleep Mm -hmm. and really model that as important Mm -hmm. and then start thinking about their family sleep habits. I, I love that systems approach. Yeah. You know, really thinking about the whole healthy family system and what sleep does for everybody in the family. Yeah, I mean, I think sleep is like a decade behind nutrition. I mean, we always talk about like, you know, how we eat as a family, having family meals, you know, what kind of food do you have in your house for your kids? We should be modeling sleep habits the same way that we talk about. I mean, really, obviously not everyone is perfect about nutrition in their family, but we're all aware of it. Mm-hmm. And, and I actually think that's an important beginning. Hopefully yeah. that conversation is going to start to happen more around sleep too. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming. You're welcome. We really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Laura. It was fun.